What I want to try to accomplish this morning is is the first half of the second paragraph of chapter 4 in our confession. We started last week with the doctrine of creation, looking at how the scriptures summarize, or how the confession summarizes the scriptures teaching on the doctrine of the, of the of creation. I want to look at the first half of paragraph two. There, there are some significant issues throughout this paragraph. You'll notice um, the, the way that our, our confession is framed, sometimes, if we're honest, can be a little perplexing. For example, as in our contemporary age, there's a great deal of controversy, even among Christians, about the doctrine of creation. But our confession gives only three paragraphs to the doctrine. And part of this is is helpful to us. It, It helps to put this in historical context and reminds us that these things were not particularly controversial. There were some things that I'll mention in paragraph two that are inserted here intentionally because there were some specific errors they were wanting to address. But with respect to uh, evolution and some of those errors that we battle today, they weren't dealing with those things yet, or at least not in, in the full form that we know now. So paragraph one we looked at last week is, was pretty straightforward. Paragraph two has some very important doctrinal things embedded in the paragraph. In fact, there's there's an important phrase that the Baptists added that we don't find in Westminster or Savoy that I'll I'll highlight for you as we go through. But with that in mind, we will only get to, at best, half of paragraph 2 today. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us so we can understand what His Word teaches and why these things are important, uh, not only in, in an academic sense, but where we live. Uh, how we function as Christians, and even a tie into our, our parent and, and child training class this, this evening. These things are important when we get into understanding the nature of, of humanity, the nature of our children. So let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Our gracious God and Father, thank you that you have so loved us and been so merciful to us that you caused your word to be written down for us. Uh, thank you that you explain to us the origins of all things, that by the word of your power you spoke things into existence, by the word of the very power of Christ all things continue to consist and hold together and have their being. Help us to see what it means that man is the focus of your creation. Help us to understand the imago dei, the image of God, Help us to understand the implications and the importance of such doctrines uh, as we worship you, as we interact with one another, as we seek to carry out the duties that you've given to us as men and women. We pray that that these things will be foundational in our thinking and in our practice. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's first of all read the paragraph in question. I'm going to go ahead and read all of it, but I'm going to cover... Lord willing, only up to the word holiness, true holiness. That will be the the end of what we seek to cover today. Paragraph 2 of the Doctrine of Creation reads this way. After God made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness having the law of God written in their hearts and the power to fulfill it, 
and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. And of course we know the end of the story. Not only was their will subject to change, but it did change in the fall. So there are things in this paragraph that anticipate what's going to come two chapters later, the chapter on the fall. But our focus today is, is that first, those first couple of phrases. And I'm going to outline this under four headings just so we can follow through and, and get a sense, hopefully, of, of what is intended in this paragraph. Number one is this, the centrality of man in creation. Of all the things that God has made, man is central to his created order, to God's created order. Secondly, the diversity of man in creation. Uh, the, the, the confession reflects what the scriptures teach, that God made man male and female. So man here is, is a shorthand word to describe both men and women, male and female. So the diversity of man in creation. Thirdly, the constitution of man in creation. And then fourthly, the purpose of man in creation. So the centrality, diversity, constitution, and purpose with respect to man. Notice there's a key word that begins paragraph two, after. After God had made all the creatures. If you turn with me to Genesis chapter two, this is, this is coming, again, straight from the pages of the scriptures. In Genesis chapter two, you, you know this, chapter one and chapter two go together. Uh, chapter two is a sense zooming in on events recorded in day six in chapter one. So we have on our, our phones these maps and things, and we constantly pinch and zoom, and, and then we have to zoom back out. And so we're constantly zooming in and out as we navigate around. In a similar way with Genesis 1 and 2, we kind of pinch and zoom in on the creation of Adam and then the creation of Eve. And so what we find in verse 18, the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. We're going to come back to that in just a few moments. I will make him a helper fit or suitable or meet for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. One of the significant conclusions we draw from this is the distinction between man and the rest of creation. See, God lined up every creature that he had made, brought them before Adam as an act of dominion and ruling authority. Adam names all of the creatures, but there was none like him. There was nothing suitable, nothing comparable to Adam. Well, why is this important? Adam even here exclaims, after, after being presented with Eve, he's the first poet and songwriter, and he says, this is at last 
bone of my bone. This one, now that God has placed before me, this one and this one alone is like me, is of the same flesh, of the same kind. Now, this is important because even more so than our fathers in the faith, we are bombarded with notions in our culture that man is not any different than the rest of the animals. Maybe he's further evolved, maybe he's more intelligent, but he's not fundamentally different. He's just another set of random molecules that happens to have progressed further on the evolutionary chain than, say, a pig or an ape. But this is not what we get from the scriptures, and it's not what our, our confession says. So the, the word after is significant. The, the writers are here putting a, an exclamation mark on the fact that Adam is distinct of all that God has made. Adam is the crown of God's created work. He's different from the beasts of the field, from the birds of the heavens, or from the beasts of the sea. But this also has another effect. Not only does it distinguish man from the rest of the animal kingdom. But there's another distinction it makes. Because Adam is different from his creator. Adam is distinct from his creator. So Adam is distinct from all, all the other things and all the other creatures that God has made, and yet Adam is still and only a creature. And we have to have both of those things in our mind, don't we? That, that Adam is not like, that man is not like, all the other things that God has made, all the other creatures that God has made. Even though, you know, the, the geneticist will tell us that the difference between a human being and an orangutan is, is a few decimal points on a DNA sequence. That's it. But the scriptures tell us, and our confession affirms, that the difference is far greater than that. It's far more substantial than that. It's far more fundamental than that. And yet... Man remains truly and only a creature. And so we must, in our mind, make this distinction and keep this distinction in our mind that man is the crown of creation, yet he is only a creature. He is always, always, always distinct from his maker. And you've heard me say this before, but so we can guard against many theological errors if we will maintain that point, that there are ways in which we can say that man is like God. We'll, we'll address this here in a moment about the, the imago dei, the image of God. And we can say by, by virtue of creation, we're made in the image of God. So there are certain aspects of mankind that are like God. And then as new creatures, we can say we are becoming more and more like God. We're being conformed to the very image of Christ, who is the full expression, the full image of God. And we have the promise that in glory, we will have a resurrected body like unto Christ's resurrected body. We will be conformed more fully to his image. We will not become gods, but we will be more and more like God. And so there are qualified, nuanced ways in which we can say we are like God, but we can never, ever, 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 never say that God is like man. And so our confession helps us to be reminded of that. After God made all other creatures, he, God, created man. Man has not created God. God does not exist in man's image. It is God who made man. So, so we look, first of all, at the centrality of man in creation. Of all the things that God has made, the focus point is on man, male and female. And that brings us to the next point, 
the next part of the outline is the diversity of man in creation. And by diversity, I mean that man was not created monolithic. Adam was not left alone. God created a complement, a helper, a suitable helper for him, the woman. He made, and the way that our, our, the language of our confession says he created man, male and female, which reflects exactly the language of the scriptures, where the scriptures say he created them, male and female, created man. But notice something, we're back in, still in Genesis 2. In verse 18, we find this phrase, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. You've probably heard uh, me work through this before, but we have to ask a question here. In what way was it not good for Adam? What ways, or I should say, what way was it not good that Adam was alone? And I think to make a more specific or more technically helpful question, we should ask this, not good for whom that Adam was alone? And what's the, what's the prevailing answer? If you just kind of did the, the man on the street kind of interview, or even walked outside of a, a big box church, and just ask Christians coming out of worship service and quote for them this passage and ask, not good for whom? What's the answer going to be? Not good for Adam. Why not? He was incomplete. He was lonely. Yeah, bless his heart. All he had was fellowship with God walking in the cool of the day. That's all he had. Bless his heart. He was lonely. But we, we ask the question, not good for whom? And, and, we, and we're consistent with the way we answer that. We'll come up with a different answer. Turn back to chapter 1. Remember, chapter 2 is zooming in on chapter 1. On day 1, God said, let there be light. This is verse 3. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good. Good for whom? Adam wasn't there yet. It was good for the glory of God. Whatever God's created purposes are, and in verse 3 of Genesis, we don't know yet what God's created purposes are. That unfolds as God reveals himself further to man. But in, in, in day one, we don't know yet. But we do know that for whatever God has eternally decreed, the creation of light was good, inherently good. Then we get to day two. We see the same pattern. Day three, day four, day five. We see the same pattern, and it's declared, it is good, it is good, it is good. Now, in the Hebrew mind, these kinds of repetition, these kinds of patterns are important, and it's particularly important when we see a pattern broken. So day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, we see it's good, it's good, it's good. And even day six, with respect to all the beasts of the field, it is good. And then all of the sudden, we see with respect to Adam, it is not good. So if we're going to be consistent on day one when God made the light and we say it was good, it had to be good for God, for his creative purposes. We get to day six and we see it's not good. We have to be consistent how we answer that. Not good for whom? It's not good for God's creative purposes. And we're going to see there's echoes here too of God's redemptive purposes. He created the male and female. Now what happens in the very next chapter after Genesis 2. The fall. 
How is it that God decreed from eternity for Adam to be redeemed? By the seed of a woman. So for God's creative and redemptive purposes, it was not good for Adam to be alone. So we have this diversity in creation that's intentional. It is intentional. Chad Van Dixhorn and his commentary on the Westminster Confession, because this up to this point the language is identical. And Dixhorn makes this, this observation. He says, still when we think of the creation of man, we need to remember that the pinnacle of creation is not one but two. God created man, male and female. The high point is not a human being, but a pair of them. We know from elsewhere in Scripture that it is not in God's providence for every adult to be married and that unique good, sometimes greater good, can be done by those who live and labor without the responsibility of a spouse or family. The Apostle Paul comes to mind as a prominent example. And yet, we also need to see that marriage is good and that the apex of creation is not a man but a couple. Together, not alone, they would, they would fill and have dominion over the earth. So you see a diversity. Now again, I don't, have to, I don't think I have to elaborate on this point why this is important for us to really believe this and know this and commit to this in our present day, do I? I don't think I have to spell out to you. I can read the headlines. Uh, you, you know them as well as I do. With, but, but we need to understand, too, that this transgender foolishness and nonsense and rebellion is a unique kind of rebellion. I'm not sure that we can have a more prominent example of a man or a woman shaking their fist at their creator and saying, I will not be who you've made me to be. You've, you've made me a male, and I will not submit to that. You've made me female in your good and kind, wise providence, but I will not submit to that. So we, we also should not fall into the trap of thinking that transgenderism or homosexuality is just one of many equal sins. It is a unique and particularly heinous form of rebellion against God. It's precisely the kind of rebellion that God speaks about in Romans 1 where they would not acknowledge him as God. And God gives them up to their own depravity, foolishness of their own thinking, and then you know the list of all the things that follow after that. And so sometimes we scratch our head and we look at the culture around us and we think, that doesn't even make sense. And then we read Romans 1 and said, well, that's exactly what God told us would happen. It doesn't make sense. They've abandoned reason. And it's not unlike what we saw in Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar. As he stood on the, on, the, on the high wall surveying his kingdom and he exalted himself and he said, oh, wow, what a great guy I am, what a mighty king I am, that I have made all of this. And you know how that story went. For seven seasons, seven years perhaps, he lived as a beast of the field. Where his hair grew, grew as long as feathers, his nails were like the talons of a, of a bird of prey. And until... God restored his reason. He lived as a, as a, as a base animal. And, and, and there's, a, there's an irony there that's intentional in the scriptures. God, by his design, by his wise and good design, distinguished man from beast. Endued man with God's own image, and yet in Nebuchadnezzar, we see that reversed. Where God said, if you want to live as if you are in charge, I will remove 
my hand of grace from you, and you will become like a beast of the field. If you want to act like a common animal, I can arrange that. That brings us to the, to the third the third heading in our outline today. So after God made all the other creatures, he created man, male and female. Now unless when you think about the constitution of man in creation, what, what is the, the, the fundamental essence of man? What is this manness, to make up a word, that, that's articulated in the scriptures and summarized for us in the confession? No, notice the language him here. He made the male and female with reasonable and immortal souls. Now, unfortunately, as, as we actually know human beings and we know ourselves, reasonable is probably not the first word that we would use, is it? Uh, so he, he's not talking about their disposition or their demeanor or their personalities. He's talking about their, their, their fundamental constitution, that man and woman, that man, male and female, was created as a reasonable creature. This is part of the image, being image bearers of God is they have a capacity that your dog will never have. Your, your, your most uh, cherished pets will never have. They're not reasonable creatures. They do not have immortal souls. Now, <clears throat> we also see the phrase, they are being made, a little bit later in the, in the paragraph, being made, after the image of God, in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. Knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. John Owen explains this phrase this way. He says, God made man in his own image. That is, in such a rectitude of nature as represented his righteousness and holiness. Meaning, God's righteousness and holiness in such a state and condition as had a reflection on it of his power and rule. The former was the substance of it, the latter a necessary consequent thereof. This representation, I say, of God in power and rule was not that image, was not that image of God wherein man was created, but a consequent of it. Now listen to what he's saying. Adam was placed in a, in a position a role, a place of dominion and authority. That is not the essence of the image of God in man, says Owen, but that he was made in true knowledge and holiness. And see, we can confuse cause and effect, can't we? It is by virtue of man's knowledge and true holiness that he becomes a ruler, which is the reflection of the character of God. And so we can confuse that cause and effect. Man's created righteousness and his created holiness is the cause of his dominion. The dominion is not the key feature of man's created essence, but a consequence. It's a consequence of his holiness and righteousness as a moral image bearer of God. Dr. Renahan, um, the, the, the quote from Owen comes from Dr. Renahan's Symbolics, Volume 2, but he, then Renahan adds this statement. He says, the paragraph is carefully structured to reflect this point, meaning the paragraph in our confession. It's carefully structured to reflect that point. Dominion is not a constituent of image bearing, but rather a result. Dominion is not a constituent of image bearing, but it's a result. Image bearing is a spiritual reality in man. 
Now, the scriptures speak of, of this image of God and man in several ways. So, in, and we saw already in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's the summary statement in which we zoom in in chapter 2 to get the details of this. But we see humanity in, in God's likeness ruling creation. But it is because of, it is the essence of man's holiness and righteousness originally created in him that makes him the ruler of creation. That's why it's not based on might or strength. That's, where the, that's why the lion is not really the king of the jungle. Because the lion is not essentially marked by his righteousness and holiness and knowledge and understanding, as is man. But we see this in other ways, too. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul says, having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So those who are redeemed, those fallen at Adam who are set right again in Christ, are being renewed. And they're being renewed specifically in knowledge after the image of its creator. When Satan tempted Adam and Eve, what was the nature of his temptation to them? What did he say? What did he promise to them? Knowledge. Knowledge of good and evil. And, and he, wasn't, he wasn't promising them that they would have the facts of life, in a sense. That they would have a, a cognitive awareness of evil. What the, the Hebrew construct there is, with respect to what he promised them, was that they would be the ones who determined what is good and evil. Not that they would merely know it. And so what the scriptures are telling us is that Paul says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. It's a purification of our knowledge and understanding. It's Romans 12. We'll look at, that, we'll look at Romans 12 more extensively this afternoon in the child training. But Romans 12, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Well, Paul's not giving us a theoretical possibility that if we don't guard ourselves, we might possibly, maybe, potentially become conformed to the world. He's saying, this is your default position. And it's by the renewing of your mind that we are no longer progressively, bit by bit, Month by month, year by year, we are less and less and less conformed to the world around us. That's what we call sanctificationism. We're being renewed according to knowledge. We're being restored in a sense. And then what is the promise in the age to come? We will know as we have been known. There's a greater restoration of our knowledge. There's a greater restoration of what it really means to be human. But there's another way that Paul explains this very the same idea. It's in Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24. Paul says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former way of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So here's we see this the the same words that are used in our confession, man was created 
after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. Paul says in Ephesians, believer, today you are being renewed after those very same things. God's original created design, the hardwired programming in you as a human being, was knowledge and holiness and righteousness. And the scripture says, by the Spirit of God, through the power of Christ, we are being renewed in the spirit of our minds, that's knowledge, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So these, that's where these words are coming from in the confession. It's right out of the scriptures, right out of the epistles. And both the, the London Baptist Confession and the Westminster Confession highlight these very things by emphasizing that man is created in God's image, but as I said earlier, it also sets the table for us. Because once we, if we, if we begin to grasp this, this fundamental feature of mankind, sin is not a feature of, of humanity. It's a bug. Sin is not a feature of humanity. What is a feature of true humanity? Righteousness, knowledge, and true holiness. That's what it means to be an image bearer. And by the grace of God, we are being restored to that place. What we lost in Adam progressively, faithfully on God's part, we are being restored. And he who began that good work in us, the scriptures tell us, promised us that he is faithful to finish that good work. Dix, Van Dixhorn, once again, commenting on this, this, this reality that we're being renewed in these things. He says, these things are simply brought into view because they are aspects of the image of God that are severely tarnished in the fall and restored in the sanctifying work of the Spirit. This is a doctrine which has implications for the way in which we live. James notes this in his epistle, James chapter 3 and verse 9. It speaks today, I mean the language of the confession, speaks today for those who would end the lives of unborn children, avoid the company of people from another race, argue for the superiority of one gender over another, or care about chumps more than children. The image of God is important for ethics. It is as much an equalizer among humans as it is an elevator over all other creatures. You see how this is so vitally important for us to grasp? That the inherent foundational feature of humanity, being, being image bearers, doesn't mean we look like God, right? We know this from the children's catechism. Does God have a body? No, God does not have a body like men. So it's not that we look like God in, in a physical sense. So what does it mean to be image bearers? Because we're reasonable souls. We are immortal souls. We are created in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness according to the image of God. The fall is going to mar all of that. doesn't eliminate it, though, does it? It's not gone from humanity. The hard drive isn't, isn't completely wiped clean, but it's corrupted, isn't it? And by the sanctifying work of the Spirit of Christ, we are renewed according to knowledge, according to righteousness, and according to true holiness. And so, as we think these things through, and, and I'll, I'll mention this again this afternoon in the child training class, this has significant implications for us as parents, doesn't it? If we think about it, this is the way in which our children were originally designed, and yet they're fallen in Adam. 
And how do we think about our goals as parents? It's got to be more than just behavior modification. It's got to be more than just maintaining an outward peace. Our, our goal is, is to place them under the means of grace in the place where the Spirit of God may be found to sanctify them in righteousness, true holiness, and renewed knowledge. One more thing that I want to point out in the confession, <clears throat> and this is a phrase that our Baptist fathers added. They are not changing the doctrine confessed by our Presbyterian and congregational brothers, but they are wanting to put a sharper point because, you know, again, just, just the chronology, Westminster was written in 1644, 1646, and by the, by the time the Baptists published theirs in 1689, written in 1677, more errors have come about. And so one of the things they were dealing with was a, a rise among particularly Anabaptists, the, the Radical Reformation. They were dealing with the rise of Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, um, Socinianism. Uh, Socinianism teach that, that humans were created mortal in the beginning. They were never designed to be immortal. They were created mortal in the beginning. And they would have died naturally whether Adam and Eve sinned or not. Further, they rejected the doctrine of original sin. They shared that in common with Pelagians, that man was not fallen, he was not corrupted, he was basically good. And see, we can make equal but opposite errors when we come to uh, our doctrine of man, particularly with respect to his soul. We can assume, on the one hand, that man's soul was always existed, and that when God made our bodies in the womb, he just simply united us to a soul that had already existed. Or we make the equal but opposite error that the soul really isn't at any point eternal. And we mentioned this last week, just the idea of annihilation, that at the end it just ceases to exist. And so our fathers were careful and wanted to, to avoid this, so they added this phrase. He created male, man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls. And here's the phrase they added, rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created. Again, that's not a doctrine that's contrary to the Westminster Confession in any way. But they are wanting to be very careful to say that man was designed for a very specific purpose. And that man was created originally good, righteous, holy, and had a, a, a suitable knowledge of God for what purpose? To live with God, to commune with God, to have fellowship with God, to have life in God and with God. That's the whole purpose of us being made. We were not created merely for human interaction. This is why we go back to the question, for whom was it not good that Adam was alone? It wasn't only Adam. Now, certainly Adam benefited personally, substantially, from having a wife given to him. But the, if I can say it this way, the not goodness of Adam's aloneness was not merely that he was lonely. It was for God's creative, and we'll see later, his redemptive purposes. It was incomplete. So unto that life, to God for which they were created, is, is a phrase that's added by the Baptists to make their opposition to Arminianism, semi-Pelagianism, 
Socinianism and other errors, other isms, to make that explicit. Again, it's implicit in Westminster. It's not, the, the Westminster Confession isn't defective or deficient at this point. The Baptists just wanted to make this, they wanted to put some bold-faced type here or underline something. And it's important on many levels. In fact, again, I plug for our child training class. This doctrine is foundational, isn't it, for how we view child training? If the goal, the created design, the created goal of humanity is fellowship with God, if that fact does not shape the training of our children, we've missed something profound. We've missed something very, very important. Our children were not created only for a good education or a good job or good relationships or an exciting life. They were not created only for their best life now. They were created for communion with God. And we as parents have to be able to recognize, not only theologically, first of all, but practically, what hinders them today from that fellowship with God. And are we faithful guides for our children to help them understand that, to discern that in themselves? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We'll, I'll close with this. Colossians chapter 3. When you see how, how the Apostle Paul works this out. Colossians 1 and 2. Uh, we, we can almost, like Ephesians, we can almost open Colossians and fold it in half. The first two chapters, Paul's laying out orthodoxy. He's laying out the doctrinal foundation. And then he draws conclusions from there. Colossians chapter 3 begins with, If then you have been raised with Christ. In other words, if all that I've just said is true, and it is, then what are the implications of this? How does this affect, to use Francis Schaeffer, how shall we then live? Paul says in, two, in verse 2, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so here we have the prohibitions that come. Put to death, therefore, as a consequence of what Christ has done in you, as new creatures, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. All of those things are contrary to knowledge of God, righteousness, and true holiness, aren't they? So Paul says these are incompatible with what you were created to be. And now as new creatures, put to death those things. Verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now... You must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. But what it says, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. I quoted that passage earlier, but I wanted to give it to you in context. Our image is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, free, or slave or free, but Christ 
So the distinguishing mark of humanity is not our ethnicity. It's not our cultural background. It's not our social status. It's not our economic status. What is it? Are we in Christ or not? And if we were in Christ, we were being renewed according to knowledge, according to true righteousness, according to holiness. Now look what he says in verse 12. Now put on then, here's the affirmative things. He said the negative, put to death these other things. In other words, take off the dirty clothes. Um, I'm not picking on you, Andrew, but it's a good illustration that just came to mind. You know, Andrew's a plumber. And sometimes when he comes home, there are clothes that he needs to put off, right? Even his boots need to be put off before they come into the house. And what does he have to do? Put on good clothes, clean clothes, fresh clothes. And so Paul uses that illustration because anybody can understand that. No matter what time period you've lived in or what kind of vocation you've been in, you understand the idea of dirty clothes that need to be put off and new clothes that need to be put on. Universal application or illustration. So Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So as Paul's working down the outfit, and you ladies know this better than us guys, what completes the outfit? The belt. It's, it's just a, that one accessory that just makes the outfit. And for, in Paul's illustration here, what's that one accessory? Love. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What Paul's giving to us in that one succinct statement of verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's a picture of the restored image of God in man. Of knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. And what Paul's saying is everything you do, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says even whatever, even if something as mundane as eating and drinking, whatever you do, even eating and drinking, do everything to the glory of God. We can have that as sort of a cliche, but it's more foundational than that. This is a restoration by the Spirit's power in us of the true image of God. That image that was not done away with, but it was marred in, in, in the fall. We were created innocent. We were created in true holiness, right knowledge of God, and righteousness for the purpose of having communion with Him. And we know from the scriptures that God cannot abide the presence of sin. And so it is through this process of, of, of restoration. It's through the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, and then by the actual ethical righteousness being created in us by the Spirit through the process of sanctification, they are, we are restored in these things. So now in redeemed man, Paul's point there in Colossians 3, in redeemed man, we see a renewed capacity, a renewed ability to fulfill man's original purpose, which was glory, to God 
in communion with God. So as we think about this, this doctrine of creation, this, this has to be something for us as Christians more than just an apologetic exercise. It has to be more than just us you know, contending against evolutionary ideas. Those are all true. They're good. But it has to be more significant than that. We, we have to recognize in our own sanctification what the goal is. We're being renewed according to knowledge. We're being renewed in true holiness. We're being renewed according to righteousness. And the confession helps make those things clear, that this was what the original picture, image of God was in man, and it was sin that caused that to be not completely undone, but irreparably marred so that man himself can never remedy it. We cannot remedy that in ourselves. We can't remedy it in those for whom we, we have the, the stewardship of caring and training, and whether that's in the home or in a church or in any other environment. We don't have the capacity to do what only the Spirit of God can do, in a sense, to recreate us after the image of God. I'll close there. We'll pick up next next time with the lex naturalis, the law of God written on the heart of man, natural law, and the power that man originally had to fulfill that law. Questions about right, Matthew? Sorry, I can't hear you. So you're asking how do we help somebody not to equivocate? Or how do, how do we help them not to make um, some of these particular sins the same as other kinds of sins? Is that what you're asking? Okay. I, to, to, it, for my own, in my own thinking, what was revolutionary for me, and it was kind of one of those duh kinds of moments, years ago, reading through Romans 1, and I had I discovered that in my mind, I had confused cause and effect. And my thinking was something like this. Because of homosexuality and sexual perversions and other things, God's going to judge our nation or a particular people. And just reading the text carefully, I realized I had it backwards. Those were the consequences. Those were the effects of God's judgment, not the cause of it. And so we can look at what's the, what's the initial sin. And, and Paul goes through in Romans 1, he uses words like for, since, for this reason, because. And, and what goes before that is they would not honor God as God. 
They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And for that reason, God gave them up. And then there's the list of all the sins. And the last paragraph there in chapter 1 of Romans, where he, Paul lists all those things and says, and that some of you not only do these things, but you give hearty approval to those that do. And so helping people to see that these are the effects of the first sin of not honoring God as God. And so when we look at some of the, the, the sexual perversions and some of the um, rejection of God's created order, those are manifestly and necessarily more heinous or grievous sins against God than the downstream effects of, of God's judgment against them. Does that make sense? So that when we look at things like the, the, the lying and disobedient to parents and, and so forth, those are, are grievous sins but they're not the root sin. And so to help people see, to go back to the root. Does that help? Okay. You had another one? Well, we, we, one, we go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and, and mark the clear distinction biblically about man being different and distinct from everything else that God had made. And man alone has an immortal soul. Our, our dog does not. Um, our cats definitely do not. Um, there, there is no immortal soul. We have no, we may have, we will live, the new heavens and new, and new earth will be a, a a, an embodied place. It's not going to be just a spirit realm. It will be physical, be tangible. And the Bible doesn't tell us about what kinds of animals or plants will be there, other than we will have rivers, there'll be trees, there'll be other things there. But we have to recognize, we have to maintain in our minds the distinction between man and the rest of creation. And that man alone, of all the, the, Rat or not irrational, all the living creatures that God made, man alone has an immortal soul. And so as we teach our children, we, we, we teach them to be good stewards, to be responsible, to take responsibility for that which God has placed in our care. So when we you have pets, you care for those pets. You make sure they have food and water. This is a duty to God because we are respecting God's creation when we do that. Um, the old school notions of conservation are important. Uh, that we, we want to be good stewards of the resources. We don't want to rape and pillage the land that God has made and, and to be abusive to animals that are in our care or neglecting of them. And yet at the same time, and we can say that with a straight face and say, and yet animals are not like man. Those can both be true. In fact, they are necess it's necessary that both are true so that man can truly occupy his place of dominion because of him being an image bearer of God in knowledge Righteousness and true holiness.
they, they were they were healthier, they were larger, they had better coats, yes. they were yeah, all of them. Either dual or competing tracks, yeah. That the woman exists to fulfill, help the man fulfill his personal ambitions, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. But, but the remedy to that is not to say, well, the woman is entitled to the equal measure of, of personal ambition and, and all those things, but to say, no, we, our shared purpose is to be image bearers of God in righteousness, knowledge, and true holiness, and we are helpers to one another in that task. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. But I mean, the language of our confession helps to, to remind us he created them, created man, male and female. There's one created kind for humanity. There's not two different kinds. There's not, um, there, there's not a, the, the ontology, the fundamental essence of humanity is not um, a superior and an inferior. That's, that's a, a, an order that God has given from the beginning, pre-fall. But that's not the essence of mankind. The essence of mankind is the image of God revealed in the matched set of male and female. Exactly. And at the same time, the instrument that God has given to the man, to the, to the male, to the head, of the instrument of authority is a tool 
to be used not for the pursuit of his own gain and ambition and his own kingdom, but as an instrument for the good of those that God has placed in his care. First of all, his wife, then his children, and then the beasts of the field and, and, the, and the, the, the earth around him. That's the function. So any man who says, well, I, I'm the man, and so I get to do what I want. Well, you've misunderstood. You've, God has given you an instrument, and you're not using it for its intended purpose. It's like putting a, giving a, a hammer to a toddler. Um, he will not use that hammer for its intended purpose. And it's not only they need two for the job, but needed complementary components for the job. That's why we don't have two Adams or Adam and Steve. You know, yeah. Um, you know, Christopher Ash makes that point. He's, you know, I mean, just thinking practically, working in the garden. I mean, men are generally speaking stronger. Why didn't he give you know two or three other dudes in order to? That's not Ash's language, but why, why did he create that if that was the only job? But again, God's design was more substantial than that. But we need to wrap up because we're, we're going to talk right through the call to worship here in a minute. So let's take a short recess. Let me pray. We'll take a short recess, and uh, we will, the Lord will call us to worship here shortly. Father, we are grateful uh, for your word. Uh, we're grateful that you are the source of knowledge and righteousness and true holiness. I pray that you will... One, help us to understand these things, but more than that, uh, help us to, to live them. Uh, help us by your Spirit's power to, to become the, the image bearers that you intended for us to be. That by your grace we will be sanctified in the truth, that we will grow unto holiness for your glory, uh, for, for our good, and for the good of, of our neighbors. I pray that you will help us as men and women to to discern rightly uh, the roles that you've given to us, not to, to be conformed to the world and, and rejecting the your good design of, of authority and submission, that we will not flatten out the contours of your creation, and at the same time that we will not use the gifts, the strengths that you've given respectively to men and women against one another, but for for co-laboring together in this, this great garden that you are restoring and have promised one day to recreate a holy and fully uh, and wonderfully in your own image. Amen.